call him names. Yeah, they never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer games. Yeah, and on this very point, it was on this very point that in 2011, the most potentially disturbing of all the Rudolph stop-motion animation movies was founded. Let's watch a clip from it. Jack! No, Charlie! That's why I'm a misfit toy. My name is all wrong. No child wants to play with a Charlie in the box, so I had to come here. Where's here? to be a spotted elephant or a choo-choo with square wheels on your caboose or a water pistol and shoot jelly we're all misfits how would you like to be a bird that doesn't fly i swim or a cowboy who rides an ostrich or a boat that can't stay afloat we're all misfits if we're on the island of unwanted toys, we'll miss all the fun with the girls and the boys when Christmas Day is here. The most wonderful, 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 wonderful day of the year. Hey, we're all misfits too. Maybe we should stay here for a while. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I think a minute and a half is long enough probably to stay here. A misfit jack-in-the-box named Charlie, a cowboy who rides an ostrich, an elephant with pink polka dots all over it. I'm really glad you were here this morning, especially if you are someone like this, someone who maybe looks at life a little differently, maybe uh, someone with quirks you try your best to mask. While others achieve a way in life, perhaps you've felt like a wanderer who knows not his or her destination, where they are going. You're poor at making emotional connections with people. You never felt like your, your opinion, your voice really matters to others. I'm thrilled that you are here this morning because we have come in Mark's Gospel to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is where the alienated, the unaccepted, the misfits can be made fit. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We're going to read verses 21 through 41. Um, last week, began encouraging you to attempt to paint yourself into this account of Christ's passion and crucifixion, because that's what Mark, our author, intends. With, with the myriad of characters relating and responding to Jesus, who himself says barely a word. And yet we have all these other people in this story. Because we're supposed to see ourselves in them. That's what Mark intends. So this, this morning I want to encourage you to paint yourself with, or even as, the characters at the crucifixion. And I want us as we read here, to note who responds with some level of faith to the deeper reality happening to Jesus as He is crucified. Note the kind of people who respond to the deeper reality going on with Jesus as He's crucified. 
Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 41. And they, meaning the soldiers, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him a wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, that is noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Gracious Father, please impress upon us this morning the cross in a way that folks may have never seen it before. Please bring through the cross community to the misfit and alienated. Challenge those of us also who still look to the cross for self-help but we don't yet see the cross for salvation. Help us this morning. Press the cross upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we see in this passage that Jesus chooses misfits. You know, it's enough that Jesus inexplicitly submits silently, saying nothing. He even chooses this unjust, he chooses this shameful execution. It's enough to do that. At least... He might at that moment choose 
proven people who demonstrated a spiritual track record to kind of carry on his kingdom legacy. I mean, think about it. If you were choosing a, a kingdom dream team, someone upon whom to build your kingdom franchise, who would you choose? Let's take a look at the profiles here. First, you've got chief priests, the stars of the draft. Experience. This would have included standing and mocking Jesus at this time. This would have included standing and retired high priests. So people who were high priests at that moment and those who have retired from being high priests since together. They had a track record of influence upon people. They see had a history of representing the people. The high priest was the top dog in charge of representing the people to God with sacrifices and prayers and representing God to the people with explanations and ultimate edicts about who God is, how people can relate to Him. He'd risen to the top of his field. He had garnered the respect of his colleagues. At this point, a high priest, we know, was nominated and then elected, appointed. So clearly people thought enough of him to say, let's choose this guy. A good candidate. And you had a number of them. Who else do we have in this story, though? We have a guy named Simon of Cyrene. A foreigner from the northern coast of Africa, which present-day Libya. Almost certainly a pilgrim who has traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, either out of curiosity or he's there for, for true temple worship. He's not only a foreigner, but he's not curious about Jesus. He's a wanderer seeking something he knows not what it is. Certainly not Jesus. Most likely scenario is he's exiting the borders of the city walls of Jerusalem and Roman soldiers stop him and compel him to carry Jesus' cross. Why? Because what happens a lot of times is criminals, especially the ones who had done something very wrong, were scourged, just like Jesus was. They took these leather whips embedded them with glass and scourged people 40 times minus one, sometimes making such a loss of blood that the prisoners or the criminals would grow weak and ultimately faint. Such was the damage done to Jesus. So they compelled a random guy to carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene. They also have a centurion, a man experienced in violence, he commanded 80 people underneath him in war, and just as many in peacetime, though certainly still an overseer of violence as we see here, crucifixions. Who's also hardened to suffering. He'd seen many men resign themselves to death at their last breath, just giving themselves up until finally they stop breathing. But something about Jesus' last cry, last groan was different. We also see a handful of women. Testimony of women was not recognized by either Roman or religious law at this time. Also, their witness was not recorded in ancient histories because it was not considered reliable. Would you choose such to spread Jesus' message? People considered unreliable? People whose testimony would not be recognized? Who would you choose to start a kingdom dream team? And yet, Jesus chose misfits. The ones who never felt like they belonged, who wondered what was wrong with them, 
these are the ones that Jesus chose. And maybe one of these describes you. Foreign to church, but seeking something, just not Jesus. That's okay. Maybe you were brought along this morning by someone. Jesus is seeking you. Maybe you're hardened and you've wondered in your life why others can show emotions really well and can connect with people on an emotional level, but you just can't. That's right. Jesus chooses such as you. Hardened. Your voice has never mattered to anyone, you feel like. Your words, whether they be meek or just offbeat, those words are valued by Jesus. Such are the kind of people who are well acquainted with the reality that they are misfit. They need a Savior to make them fit. Maybe such are you. One of Jesus' later converts, the Apostle Paul, he connects the message of the cross. Jesus Christ crucified, as we see here this morning, to its statistical attractiveness among misfits. People who just know that there is something wrong with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy human wisdom and discard their most brilliant ideas. So where does this leave? Philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters. God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. Let's get down here a little. God's way seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove that it's true, as we see here with the chief priests. It is foolish to the Greeks because they believe only what agrees with their own wisdom, with what's completely rational and provable, in other words. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. The Gentiles say that's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the mighty power of God and the wonderful wisdom of God. Let's get down a little. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. I've always looked up to my older brother. Um, he's nine years my senior. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, one of my best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. Um, my sister, who's the middle child in our family, uh, was sometimes driven crazy by my brother's overachievements. He was a true older brother, always overachieving, getting what he wanted. She drove her crazy, especially when I would actually look at his muscles, his biceps, and call them the Twin Towers. He would do this, and I would say, oh, man, Twin Towers. Be like, oh, eh. <laughs> Give a wry smile. He worked hard. He hit it well when he did something wrong. He achieved his boyhood dream of getting into a great medical school getting into a surgical internship, and ultimately a full-time surgical position in a major university in the U.S. He got married to another doctor, and it worked. Had kids. Years, years ago, 
where he was out at a medical conference in Chicago, near where I was living at the time. So we just got together, spent an amazing day in downtown Chicago, which is a beautiful place if you've never been. At the end of the day, we were talking about blessings. And guys, he recounted just basically everything we just read from the Apostle Paul. He, he, his blessings were the, sort of the surgical esteem he had garnered in the world's eyes. The knowledge. The getting power and influencing, gaining it through the ranks of his profession. And of course, the money that allowed him to have a secure future for his family. These are some of the blessings he mentioned, understandably. In that moment, we had one of those just pregnant pauses. And he looked at me and he said, Ryan, I know what you're going to say. I said, All right, what? What do you think I'm going to say? You love me, so you don't want something bad to happen to me. But you worry that if it doesn't, I won't see my need for God. Just shook my head. Yeah. That's what I worry. I love you so much. I want to know you forever. I want to know you in heaven. Not long after um, his wife gave birth to their second child, who soon suffered a profound set of seizures that sent him back developmentally, mentally and socially. He's an awesome kid. This is what happened. He experienced seizures then again and then again over a period of years. All of a sudden, my brother went from fit and able, sufficient to lead the life set before him, to misfit, glaringly insufficient to handle this. More money towards it. Didn't have the knowledge as a doctor to handle it. Didn't have the knowledge to be the kind of father to this child that he needed to be. He experienced those limits. But also... Something else emerged from within. A selfishness. A recognition that uh, this is not the life I wanted. And I still love my kid. And battling with that. It was during this period of life, misfit, he found himself finally attracted to the cross. These verses here explain why the cross is so attractive to the misfit. So let's, get, let's keep seeing this. See what my brother recognized, and hopefully you will as well. So secondly, we see in this passage that Jesus becomes misfit to make us fit. He becomes misfit to make us fit, both with God and with others. As awful and excruciating, which is where the word comes from, as the physical crucifixion was, to die essentially from either suffocation or from a heart that literally bursts. A deeper reality was being experienced by Jesus as he was crucified. A reality that's explained strangely but, but vividly by one, darkness, two, a strange set of final words before you die that Jesus gives, and thirdly, the tearing of curtains. So let's look at this. What's the reality going on as Jesus is dying? It makes the cross so important and so attractive and so valuable i got to do some explaining here, okay? Stay with me. First, darkness. This darkness was taking place from noon to 3 p.m. So the height of the day when the sun would be most evident. It couldn't have been an eclipse. A solar eclipse can last at most about six minutes. So clearly, for three hours, 
something supernatural was taking place. To which the most natural response would have been the same when we as kids saw the sky grow darker and more ominous. Remember as kids, you would have said, uh-oh, looks like somebody's angry. This is all confirmed by Jesus' strange set of final words to say before you die. Right? People usually say words of consolation. He says, Eloi, 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 lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting, guys, Psalm 22. It was written 900 years earlier by another king named David. The first verse of which goes like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. You may remember at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel. The very beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus begins His ministry how? Do you remember? How does He begin His ministry? What visibly happens? Baptism. Remember this? Very beginning, Mark chapter 1. Who shows up at His baptism? Who shows up to cheer Him on? You have God the Holy Spirit who descends upon Him as if to say, He is the one who will love and minister and live the right life that you guys can't. And who else shows up? God the Father. Who says directly to Jesus, but we can all overhear it, You are my beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. A moment of love, a moment of celebration, a moment of commissioning, of support. It's Jesus' forever church. This is His forever church, His eternal community group. It's going to be with Him on earth as they always have been with Him in heaven. Now we're at the end of Mark's Gospel and His community has forsaken Him. Utterly forsaken Him. Utterly alone. Utterly alienated. The only way to get a visceral sense of this is by way of analogy, like with most things, especially when it comes to the cross. I've been married you know, 13 years to Katie. And for Katie to say to me, I reject you. I won't have anything to do with you. You repulse me. For her, for her to say that to me would just be totally and completely devastating. You know, I know my friends Ken and Ellen Gearing. I saw them earlier. Where are you, Ken and Ellen? There's Ellen. Ken's up there at the booth. Married 41 years. Ken, can you imagine Ellen saying to you, I don't have anything to do with you. I despise you. You repulse me. And yet, that was happening to Jesus. Being told by your father at the doorstep of your youth, you may no longer enter. We don't wish to know you. This was being experienced by Jesus because a deeper reality was going on. Jesus was taking the sin, the rebellion of people towards God for all of history, past, present, and future upon Himself. The Bible talks about this very directly. The most repulsive thing to God, the anti-God was upon Jesus in all its fullness. I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus alienated no one in this life. Jesus never alienated anyone. He was welcomed. He welcomed all. 
He lost not one who would come to Him. Most of them misfits. Many misfits were made whole, in fact, by Jesus. He didn't just welcome them. He, he fit them. Lepers labeled unclean were restored to society. Adulterers restored to their families. Tax collectors to their communities. This is what we've seen in Mark's Gospel. The blind and the deaf were restored to the world around them to see and hear for the first time the world. He is the only one fit to take our place. The only one to get kicked out from His divine community, alienated by mankind, marred and disfigured by both, so that those of us who've tried to kick God out of our own lives, who've experienced alienation, alienated others, might be restored both to Him and to others. This is a greater reality happening on the cross. That's what the curtain tearing is all about. So let's look at that too. Verses 37-38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed His last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A four to six foot thick steel curtain, essentially a metal curtain, torn from top, from heaven, to bottom. There were actually two temple curtains. Two temple curtains in the temple. And the word used for curtain here in Mark and the other Gospel writers may refer to either the curtain separating the court of men from the Holy of Holies, where God was. I'll explain that in a minute. Or it could be the curtain separating the men from the court of women and the Gentiles behind them. Okay? The Holy of Holies represented awesome, holy, perfect presence of the Almighty. So the curtain of separation of, of that metal was needed four feet thick. If you or I, having sinned, went back there, boom! Instantaneous death before a perfect and holy and pure yet awesome God. Because we are not that way. It's kind of like the stage curtain behind us. a very imperfect analogy. If we were to Put the stage curtain up. What does the stage curtain usually do? It protects people from what's going on on the stage behind them. Maybe people are doing, you know, warming up. The rock sets are doing their crazy rock set dance. You might get kicked in the face. Who knows? But it protects people, doesn't it? It could protect your kids from running on stage afterwards and getting themselves hurt. In fact, that's a good idea. We should probably do that. And we know that that happens. Similarly, the curtain is to protect people. Because they can't handle the presence of God, not with sin in them. The further out court, and I mentioned over here, separating the men worshiping here from the women. And then the Gentiles behind them. You can think of that potentially like the curtain separating first class from coach. Those of you who've flown before, you know what I'm talking about. Who here has never flown first class? I'll raise my hand. Most of us, some of you are a little ashamed right now, like, oh, I have. I'm a frequent flyer. I spend thousands of dollars. It's okay. I'm not judging you. Those of us who have not, you know that feeling. You're walking into the, in the plane for the first time. You look to your right. That's your seat. There's the curtain. You just kind of want to get a little peek, don't you? What is life like that up there like? What do they get? Is it full massages? Do they get facials? I mean, what is this? You know, do they get to watch live games as they're going? What, what is happening? 
Think of that your whole life. You are separated from others. They know it. You know it. Everyone knows it. This curtain served as a reminder that there was an order to community and some barriers just were not crossed. There's quite a debate amongst commentators over which curtain is torn at the death of Jesus. And it's not worth getting into all the minutiae other than to say that there's evidence on both sides. But I think Mark and the Gospel writers, each of the Gospel writers aren't specific. They're purposely, I think, vague, in my opinion. Because they wish for us to think of both curtains. They wish for the readers to think, oh yeah, the curtain's in the temple. But there are two of them. Which one does he mean? He wants us to think of both. The outer court curtain separated Gentiles and women from the people of God. Notice, whom does Jesus attract in these verses that we're reading? Two Gentile men and a handful of women. Two Gentile men and a handful of women coming together. Barriers coming down. Two Gentile men a handful of women. That's like a lot of our community groups. We describe that way. People might ask you about your community groups. You might be able to say, it's two Gentile men and a handful of women. It's a number of our community groups. But fellowship is made possible with all because Jesus tears down the barrier to fellowship. To the things that divide us. Just to review, the darkness signals a change in the relationship. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, signals a break in the relationship. And the curtain tearing signals a tearing down of barriers so that we might have eternal relationships. A change, a break, a tearing down of barriers so we might have eternal relationships. Jesus' death tore down the barrier of community with God and with others. All the relational hostility, all the alienation we experience in relationships with one another and that we sense towards God was absorbed by Jesus so that we would not have to experience it any longer. Jesus became misfit for his community to make us fit with God and fit together. That's good news. This has so many implications for us. Let me give you just three quickly. By trusting Jesus has torn down these relational barriers, you enter into this intersection of divine community between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're right there in the midst of it all. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you. You. Eduardo Del Risco. Sean Olson. Lisa Wellman. You. Ryan Oschlager. Man. Romans 5.19, by one man's obedience, you are made right with God. Romans 8.17 says, you are fellow heirs with Christ. You have all the rights that Christ has as the eternal Son of God, creator of the world. Secondly, this means that your membership in a new communities is true before you feel or experience all its benefits. Here's what I mean. At first, you might feel uncomfortable talking with God. Reading God's Word and being like, I don't understand this. I want to give up. Kind of being with other people in the church. You feel less than included. I encourage you, step out obediently into this new reality and the feelings will follow. It's true. The barrier has been torn down between you and God, between you and others. You are part of His church if you trust Christ. So step out and watch the benefits and the feelings follow. 
Third implication is we can no longer relate through spiritual and social extra credit. Here's what I mean. God accepts you as you are because of what Jesus has done, not because of good works, habits, deeds, or lack thereof. Any of those things, any of those extras are extra credit. Spiritual extra credit with God. God doesn't care. He looks at you. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ's deeds, Christ's credit. And we just respond with a, a life of thanksgiving to Him. It's wonderful. Equally, the church ought not relate on what I call social extra credit. We can't relate based on one's looks, one's social reach, one's wealth, and one's job. Notice I'm not saying that you can't bond over your mutual Jesus plus I love Taylor Swift. Okay? You're welcome to. Like if you, if you love Jesus, and, and you know what? We both love Taylor Swift. Great. Awesome. You have that in common as well. You both love polka. Whatever it might be, wonderful. I'm not talking, those aren't real barriers. Real barriers. How someone looks, how they dress, one's social reach, one's wealth, one's job. And we still have a long way to grow as a church in that, guys. But the cross can change all that. We've seen in this passage, Jesus chooses misfits. Jesus becomes misfit to make us fit. We also see in this passage, finally, how a misfit can be made fit. How can you make a new and eternal community true for yourself? If you notice a pattern in here of each of these characters looking at the cross, each character personally looks to Jesus Christ crucified long enough to recognize that there is my salvation. They sit there long enough looking at Jesus, gazing upon the cross to recognize there is my salvation. That is how I can be made fit. The centurion stood, look at that, facing him and saw, you can see, that in this way he breathed his last. Verse 39. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance at the cross. Looking, seeing, looking. Simon of Cyrene was up close and personal with the cross as you could possibly get. And then there were the chief priests, also looking, but not to Jesus Christ crucified as their salvation. Look at this, verse 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, he saved others, he cannot save himself, but the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might, what? See, see, and believe. There's something about seeing. You guys, the chief priests were looking for a God who would save himself because they thought self-preservation is the highest good. Keeping my life the way it is, comfortable, with influence, with power, with social status, that's the greatest good. And that's the greatest God for my life. Remember back to Jesus turning over the temple, if you guys remember back to this? Chief priests were making money. They were doing well from temple worship. A comfortable lifestyle. And they reference it here again. Life fit them well. They wanted a self-help God who would encourage their self-sufficiency, not a Savior who would restore them to real community with God and with others. They wanted a self-help God who would affirm them, love them, fill a little piece of their life, not someone who would utterly restore them to real God and real community. Mark's Gospel is written for misfits. Rufus's, we know this from Romans 16, his family trusts Jesus. 
or sorry, sorry, Simon Cyrene's family trusts Jesus. That's why they mention Rufus here and Alexander. We see them mentioned again in Romans 16. These women with Jesus stick with him all the way to the resurrection. They're the first witnesses to join Jesus' triumph. The centurion trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. When he sees Jesus utter a different kind of cry, a cry of triumph, a cry of, it is finished, as if he's finished this task that a holy God has given to him. Why? Because for between three to six hours on a dark Friday, this handful of misfits stopped and really looked at Jesus Christ crucified. They were forced in that time to look inside themselves and acknowledge falling short of Jesus' life turned sacrifice. They were compelled to admit the, the death that they carry around in their own bodies as they decay physically. To see the alienation personified on the cross and to think about, consider the alienation they've shown towards others. To stop and bravely confess there must be something wrong with me if there's a man who is perfect, who loved others, who welcomed others, taking my punishment for me. Will you stop and look this morning to all who recognize they are misfit? Would you stop and really look at Jesus Christ crucified? I pray that you will. There He is. Suffering. Dying. Forsaken by a community above and deserted by an earthly community below. This is His choice. He has opened His arms freely on the cross to welcome all who would come to Him. Friends, by looking to Jesus Christ crucified, misfits are made fit. Please stand with me if you would. And as we sing, I want to encourage you to look, to gaze upon Jesus Christ crucified who can make a misfit